0: Hi, welcome to In These Moments. My name is Wale Manuel.
1: And I'm Timmy Ogunira.
0: Today's story follows a theme that has been quite consistent in our previous episodes. That is the relationship between parents and their kids. Timmy, how is your relationship with your parents?
1: Ooh, (laughs) I was not prepared for this. (laughs) Let me stop. My relationship with my parents. Wait, I think my mom just started listening to this podcast. Oh, hell. Well, are you trying to get me in trouble?
0: Just so, saying. If I can.
1: So, so my relationship with my parents is, I think, similar to or mirrors a lot of probably other African children's relationship with their parents. Um... I know that my parents have, in recent times, like, you know, been put in more effort, but I also, like I said, I think this mirrors a lot of other African parents because it's kind of that thing where a lot of our relationships with them are transactional in the beginning. You know, there wasn't really any encouragement to be expressive of your emotions. There wasn't too much consideration for it, if we're being honest. But there was more, if anything, of an emphasis to provide and stuff. Like that, and so I would say that my relationship with my parents is evolving, especially now that I am older or as I'm getting older. But I think that the evolution is still from that foundation of establishing an actual connection and actually knowing each other or knowing ourselves as opposed to just doing what we feel is obligatory towards one another.
0: My mom and I have this pretty it's a respectful relationship it's a like she comes to ask me for opinion on stuff when she's about to do it and stuff which also kind of goes into the fact that my dad is not around so there's that part but we have a pretty good relationship she was it
1: ever nice. transactional or, or was it always like a hearty vulnerable um yeah nah <laughs> no
0: it was never quite vulnerable but It was also not quite transactional if that makes sense for me personally it could also be my personality like i was the kid who never really gave anybody any stress so like i just stayed in my corner and just like i would be around and nobody would even know i'm around like that kind of thing um one time my parents were out and i was in the back seat it was both of them and we're at the gas station And we're about to pump gas. This was in Lagos, by the way. You know, Lagos, they pump the gas for you. So we had to pump gas into the car. And then the the gas thing blew up, right? And the guy about to pump the gas, he ran away, right? He ran away. And my parents, like, ran out of the car. And I was just sitting in the car alone, like, okay. (laughs) They left me in the car. And I just, at that point, I just kind of, like, wound down the window and just jumped out the window. I was probably, like, four or whatever then. I should kind of like be offended that they left me there. But I kind of understand also that I was that kind of kid. I would be there, but I wouldn't be there. I'll just be in like my own world. So I think that's been the way it's always been for me in particular. And he it has his disadvantages also. Your feelings are not quite seen because they're not really focusing on you. And it makes it worse because I had two sisters who pretty much sucked out all the attention most of the time. I feel like it could have been better, but I also understand that My parents had a family when they were super young, so, you know.
1: How old were they?
0: Oh, my mom had my big sister when she was 16. 16, yes. So, like, she had me at 19. And then she had my baby sister at 24.
1: So you're the middle kid as well. That makes a lot of sense. Cause I was like same same. I think this being forgotten thing has to be a theme with middle children. I was also forgotten once at amu- an amusement park. Funny oh my enough, God. yeah. <laughs> so
0: that's actually worse. How?
1: Truthfully, it is. but um, I went with my cousins and I think it was the same day that we had an incident with another one of my cousins who didn't know how to swim, but wanted to impress my from abroad cousins. And so he went to the highest and jumped in the pool and almost drowned. So there was already that that happened that day. But then I remember being at um, the little bumper carts with an older cousin. And then I turn and I don't see him anymore. And then I'm there for I don't remember how long, but, you know, it felt like a long time. And, you know, I was crying and everything. And then finally, They come back and they get me. And I think they were already like all packed up in the car on the way home (laughs) before they realized that I wasn't there.
0: That's actually quite sad. Yeah. I think it goes into a lot of the trust issues many of us still have. That's a whole different story in its own. And we're definitely going to do something in relation to that in the future. But without further ado, let's get into the story of a lady we are calling Jane.
2: My name is... I'm the first of six children, and I grew up in the eastern part of Nigeria. My relationship with my parents, I think it was different with both parents. My dad, he's always been my best friend. He was very much involved in my childhood, in my upbringing. The things that I know now, I picked them up from the time when I was a kid. So I'd say my relationship with my dad was perfect before... It fell apart a few years ago, and my mom and I—we've just had—we we'll say I'll tell you, we've had a shaky relationship from my childhood because of a marriage to my father and mm-hmm. the circumstances surrounding it. It totally fell apart about like last year, so I'd say we we don't really have a relationship right now. I grew up in a family of Jehovah's Witnesses, so that's pretty much it's a different religion from the rest of all other religions that I have ever read about or heard about. As a Jehovah's Witness, you're not really allowed to marry from outside. You're not allowed to date from outside. You're not allowed to create strong bonds and friendships with strangers to the truth, as I would call it. So my parents' marriage began as two people who were trying not to break the rules. And I got to know this because I was a very observant child. Most of the arguments, the fights, the misunderstandings, I was very much involved in it. I was always trying to protect my siblings and not make those mistakes when I grew up. I really don't think there was ever love. I think it was just marriage as an institution being obeyed and being adhered to and things like that. My mom comes from a family that have a fundamental problem because of their upbringing as well. Her dad and her mother, they were just like a union of two big bombs. She always talks about her father's temperament, and it was pretty much the same thing with my grandmother. So I think it's really understandable why anybody who comes out of there would have a difficulty being normal. She has about seven siblings, and none of them talk to each other. There is this very solid friction between all of them, and it all has history in the way they were brought up and the way they've begun to perceive life and behave. So, bringing that into a marriage was not just a problem, it was a disaster. And bringing children into a union like that was just going to triple the disaster that it already was. It was really, really tough for me growing up and hearing two adults shouting and being locked in a room while I didn't even know what was going on outside, hearing bottles breaking and coming out and seeing that my father's guitar was destroyed and I really don't know what happened. Seeing centre tables broken and seeing ceramics flung in the air, it was really, really difficult for me. And it affected my self-esteem because everybody knew me as a child with a crazy mother from the crazy family. And I still had to protect my siblings. I think one of the turning points was when I left home for boarding school and I was able to relate with people Without shouting, because I was also being affected by what they were doing. I couldn't talk without my voice being loud or even though I wasn't really an aggressive child. But I, I just wanted to be heard most of the times at home. So I had to shout, which is a problem that most of my siblings still have to now. So I learned how to interact. I learned how to communicate my feelings properly. I forged a lot of friendships beyond the borders of my faith and my religion. And it shaped my life in a very positive way because I began to see things differently. I began to see that everything I was going through was just not normal, even though it wasn't a sudden realization. It was just me coming to a very solid realization that, no, this is not how home is supposed to be. And most times when there were breaks or holidays, I just hated going home. When it's like two weeks to midterm break or two weeks to the school vacation, I'll just start getting waves of depression because I knew I was going to face problems at home. And when I went home, I kept praying to go back to school because I had bullies in school. I had people that didn't like me, people that tortured me in school, but I preferred that. I went through one of the worst bullying cases in school and yet I kept wanting to go back. I was targeted in school, but these people were strangers to me. It was more of a physical targeting than it was of anything else. But at home, home is supposed to be everybody's solace, everybody's joy, and everybody's protection. It was just something I never felt. I hate to say this, but I hated my mom. I really hated her because what she viewed as over assertiveness, I was a huge threat to her. It was probably from a place of jealousy and anger because the love she couldn't give my dad was something that my dad and I enjoyed. My dad and I were really good friends. And whenever things were going wrong in the marriage, whenever they were fighting or arguing, 90% of the time or 95% of the time, my mom was the aggressor. My mom was a problem generally. So it was something I always spoke against. My brother and I, we always spoke against it and she hated us for that. And even when we spoke against it, we knew that we already knew our biases. We already knew that this is not a problem that daddy caused. But then we still try to tell him somehow that you too, you have a problem, you're, you've, you're messing up. You're not supposed to do this. They were just different people. I have screamed at my dad before during one of the arguments and he came inside and closed the door and sat down and begged me to forgive him for doing something like that. This is something that when I do to my mom in a very mild manner, she takes it. She, 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 she's a really, really aggressive person. There were times when she Lit my clothes and you know, burned my clothes. I didn't have anything to wear. My earliest memory of being thrown out of the house was when I was four. There were times I had to sleep under the staircase, there were times I had to run to a neighbor's house to sleep and feed there. There were times I had siblings too, I had to take care of. So while I was sleeping, I'll feel a cockroach or a rat and I'll just sit up and Keep staring with my slippers, waiting to see that thing and kill it. Being thrown out of the house started like this. She's having an an argument with my dad. My dad is someone that is very enduring, which is a trait that I I would always advise people not to have. You should know your limits. Sometimes he tries to endure the whole insults and verbal abuse. It triggers her to do more. So sometimes my dad, for the sake of peace, just comes out of the house maybe goes to a friend's house or hotel to sleep. And out of anger, because she knows there's nobody she'll transfer the aggression to anymore, she kicks us out of the house. I was sexually abused because of this. The, the part that really kills me is remembering that my mother used this against me for years. Whenever we were having an argument or my parents were having an argument, she knew that was something that really hurt me she was very quick to remind me that i was a hole i was a slut i was a prostitute i already started prostituting myself at the age of 7 or 8 and that i'm not i'm never going to be worthy i really hated going home because she was always attacking me sometimes she would scream it so the neighbors would hear it there was this particular time she she called my siblings my two sisters have to sisters so she called them and i think she did something and i told her that what she did i didn't like it or so so she beat me and hits me and all that she made me lie down she opened my legs and like showed my siblings my vagina and told them that they should never be like me that i've lost my virginity and no man is going to respect me and they should never share their cool things with me I don't it was it was really, really bad because every single time I thought of going home, wherever I was, I knew there was something coming for me. And that was simply because I asserted myself or I was trying to protect my siblings or I was trying to or simply because I survived. I was being starved and I didn't come to beg for food and somehow I found a way to eat. It made her angry. Or seeing me and my father smile sometimes just Triggered her. There was this time too. I would never forget it. My parents were having an issue and we were dropped in my grandmother's house, in her mother's house. They were not staying together then. So later my dad was summoned to come, you know, for a discussion to know what happened and stuff. So most of my mom's siblings were there and some respected family members were there too. When it came to my time to talk, I said everything the way I saw it. I said everything my father did wrong. I said everything my mother did wrong. As I started talking about my mother's faults, she stood up and told everyone that this one too is talking. That why are you even giving her a platform to talk? Someone that has slept with all the guys in the neighborhood. And everybody stood up and were like, whoa, are you serious? Like Instead of coming to deliberate on how to resolve this family problem, everybody was looking at me as if so you're a whole... Her younger sister, she called me aside and was like, so, at your age, you've already started doing bad things. How old are you? You're just about eight. She, she's already in university and she hasn't even had sex and I've already ruined my life. During the heat of the argument, one of her siblings stood up and she was like, no, this is wrong. This is a little girl and whatever happened to her was never her fault and people started attacking that one too. So you, you can see the kind of family it was. Mental abuse was a weapon. In her hands, for me, my siblings, for my father, everyone else. And my dad held my hands and just pulled me to the back and wiped my tears and told me, don't worry, you can't even leave your things here. Let me take you home. I cried so bad. For the majority of that trip, it was just my dad trying to calm me down and make me not to feel bad. When my mom outed me to her siblings for being abused, There were lots of side talks. People were coming to the side to, like, advise me and caution me and, like, tell me that I've ruined my life, I'm a hoe, that what I did, that I've already started spoiling myself. Nobody's ever going to respect me and all that. And one of the people who did that was my uncle, my mom's only brother. At some point, he just started laying his own foundation. And one thing I'll never forget is how... Whenever I tried to, like, fight him or anything, he would remind me that it's not as if he's a first person. He did this for years. It wasn't just sexual abuse. There was also a very serious part of physical abuse to it because he was a very violent person. There was this particular time. It was just my mom giving me an instruction. I was like, oh, she told me to do this one, and now you're telling me to do this one. My mom didn't take it seriously. It was like, he's going to deal with me. And later he told me to, we had this really large um, sitting room and he told me to carry the center table on my head and crawl from one end to another. And there was this rough carpet on the floor and he told me to crawl from one end to the other 50 times, twice. So I did a hundred crawls. And by the time I was up, my skin was off. I still have some not really visible scars now because it's been years, but they're still on my knee. It was from that particular incident. That was a time when my parents just like told him to leave their house because they couldn't understand that type of abuse. There was literally no way I could tell anybody what was happening to me, not even my father, because I knew somehow my mom would also get wind of that one. And secondly, too, I knew that the only punishment this guy was going to get was an excommunication or a disfellowship because Jehovah's Witnesses, like the Catholic Church, concealed child abuse. I just kept it to myself. Today, he's married. He has three kids. He lives in Port Harcourt, I hear.
0: At this point in our discussion, I asked how these experiences have affected her romantic relationships. And she shared this beautiful story about her second relationship.
2: I would say I, I was really lucky with my second relationship because it it helped me to evolve as a person. I never really thought... I'd go through something as beautiful as that. My second relationship was the first time I said, let me look outside my, the boundaries of my faith and date outside my, my religion. And that is why I think this religion thing might have had a lot to do with why my mom and his siblings couldn't grow out of their circle of abuse. I started dating this guy. I felt guilty the first month, few months of our relationship because I felt like I was breaking a law. I wasn't supposed to be with this person. But this was an amazing guy. He was a really, really amazing guy. And that was when I started enjoying sex. Like, that was when I started enjoying sex. I started enjoying being on long phone calls with someone, expressing myself without being told to be smaller or told to make myself less powerful. He was someone who really enjoyed my company, he was always pushing me to be heard like don't try to don't try to water that down just say as this like it was not something i was used to at all and it was very new to me and that's when the relationship i'm really happy happened because it shaped my life yes the relationship has ended but I, I was at least able to test myself and see that i can be in a loving relationship with someone who respects me and who i respect as well and I tried my best. it was it was not difficult, but it was extremely important, and sometimes I got scared that I would slip. but he told me, no, you're 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 doing really well. you You listen, and I listen too. You talk, and I talk too. You understand and I understand too. So it was a mutual level of respect and understanding. We never had a problem until he left the country was strange being in a relationship where i didn't have to argue with anybody but at the same time i i knew that something like this exists and it's placed my taste on a very high ladder right now that it's very hard for me to like settle because first of all i have learned from my parents marriage that endurance is not something that people should really be proud about in
0: relationships
2: because my dad endured a lot of unnecessary rubbish that we, 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 the children, we were really, really pissed about at some point.
0: Leaving the church behind as a Jehovah's Witness is a very tough decision to make. You're pretty much signing up to leave everyone and everything you know behind because they're not allowed to have very close contact with you like they used to. And this happened to her when her parents disowned her. While I was doing some research on this fellowship, I stumbled across this writer, Amber Skara. She has this interview with Trevor Noah on The Daily Show where she spoke about her experiences leaving the church. And you can find a lot more in her book, Leaving the Witness. When you
3: look at your life now, you left the religion. And one of the hardest parts of leaving the religion was how you were cut off from your family and your society. It feels like that in of itself it lends itself more to being culty than, than other mainstream religions in a way. Like, what was that like for you? Yeah, I think, um, there's a scene in the book where one of the characters tells me I'm in a cult, and I react very strongly. I felt really angry, and I was adamant that that wasn't true. Right? Does anyone who's in a cult ever know they're in a cult? That's... you know,
0: yeah. I don't think...
3: I don't think they do. Except
0: the leader, <clears throat> hopefully.
3: Yeah, um, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was when I started to have doubts and questions and started to leave. I think when you try to leave a group and then strange things start happening, that can be when it starts to occur to you that maybe you might have been Right. In a cult. You might be in a cult way. When... Yeah. So, sort of, for example, as you said, if you're... You know, it wasn't like I was ranting and raving or, er, about it. I wasn't, like, in the church being like, this is wrong, but I-, I mentioned a couple things, maybe some doubts that I had had, and very quickly, my community just shed me as a person. And that's quite a big thing for people who have been taught to build their life around mm-hmm. the community. Mm-hmm. So that felt strange. And then I think the further, you know, I got one step away after that happened, and the further I got away from it, I would start to see other things, examine other things, like the different beliefs that they have, and whether they cause harm. I think that's a good gauge, whether a group... I mean, religions can do... be a cause for good, but they can also, on the flip side, can be a cause for harm. So, for example, um, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in taking blood transfusions, even if it saves your life, and so that's caused thousands of deaths, so that's... When I started to think about that more, um, with a little bit of distance, it started to me feel like it's not that much different than cool, drinking Kool-Aid. Right. People are dying unnecessarily. So there's little signs along the way that started to make me feel that it was a group that was not really a positive. Um, didn't have a really positive effect. Right. When we look at this.
0: Now back to Jane's story.
2: My first therapy started out as me trying to deal with depression that came from me breaking out of religion because it was really difficult if you want to stop being a Jehovah's Witness your life is really made hard and difficult there was this point where I was disowned by my father disowned by my parents and like they stopped talking to me for months I was alone that was how my first therapy started I think that's the major issue I'm dealing with now because I created coping mechanisms for myself from my childhood But this particular one was difficult because particularly I was breaking out of the only support system I've known since I was a child. I was breaking out from my relationship with my father. Now we're no longer, we're no longer friends. We hardly ever talk. We have hushed conversations and it hurts me, but I don't think I want to keep pretending that I'm involved in this religion thing when I know that I'm not. It's not working for me and... I think evidently it's not working for a whole lot of people. I don't want to I don't want to be involved in it anymore. Around October last year, I was serving and in Abuja, and my father, I got a letter from my father. It was just like a letter of disowning, like literally disowned me through the letter. I was told not to communicate with anybody anymore. Nobody called me for like three months. um and later he he apologized, he came all the way to Abuja to see me. And we had a very short conversation and he left. But the part of it I, I really do not like is this. I don't mind being seen as the, you know, outlaw. Well, the part that really gets to me is the fact that my father sees everything as his fault. He sees it as an evidence of his failure as a father. That he wasn't able to raise me in the truth and I fell out of the truth. And it was because he couldn't create a better environment for me as a child. So whenever I had conversations with him, I just, see, I just see the face of a father who feels a heavy sense of failure. I wish someone could like convince him that it's not his fault. People grow out of things and that people choose different paths for different reasons to Definitely, my upbringing and the environment in which I grew up shaped my life, but that's not the only thing. Yeah, my relationship with my father is really terrible right now in comparison to what it was years ago my relationship with my mother does not exist because um initially when i dropped out of the faith she wanted me to be bundled to a psychiatric hospital or something because she believed i was crazy so my father went about it a softer way he convinced me to come back come down to the east so we'll go to the hospital and i promised him okay fine if that's what you want We'll go for it, psychological evaluation and whatever the doctors say you get to understand that everything i'm doing i know about it and i'm not going crazy i came down to the east and we went to this hospital in enugu went for a ct scan <laughs> an mri scan when like doctors were like see there's nothing wrong with this girl she's perfectly okay and we had conversations and the doctor said like she she has she has mental balance she's very coordinated there's nothing wrong with her you just have to understand that things have changed and times have changed too and people have changed as well my mom was really mad at that because she felt he had spoiled you know a lot of things and she still she still like holds it as a grudge against me because instead of being bundled bundled to a psychiatric hospital I was pampered into it and mm. nothing came out of it and now I'm still... I'm still not a believer. So we don't talk. The last time I went home, she treated me like a stranger, had really, really insignificant conversations with her. I don't think any conversations exist. It was just monotonous replies. And she wasn't even taking my greetings at some point. So that one does not exist.
0: right. So what do you think about the story?
1: The story breaks my heart. And, and I think what breaks my heart even more is that it's not completely unfamiliar to me. You know, it's not the first that I've heard of this kind of really, really turbulent relationship between a mom and a daughter. Something that she said, like closest to the beginning caught my attention. And that was that her mom um, has seven siblings, like she grew up in, in that household, and none of them are talking to each other. And then also, of course, the way that like her family members reacted to what her mom said about her, like a literal child. It goes back to that generational thing that we've been talking about, like generational habits and curses and things like that. And how when left unaddressed, is just another thing that gets passed on. You know, and and the reality is that children learn from watching their parents live. So you can beat them over the head with a Bible or your interpretation of it anyways, but it doesn't mean that it's going to really take into effect or translate the way that you want it to if your actual life is not a reflection of that.
0: Whenever we talk about generational curses and generational things, Most African people would think of stuff like poverty, health issues, and stuff like that. But what is very obvious is that the real generational curse for most people are these family traits and family traumas. This trauma that's passed down from generation to generation. Her speaking about her mom's parents and the mom's family and how a lot of them grew up in a place that was very volatile, and very aggressive and everything, and not very friendly. It's really not surprising that her mom grew up to become, you know, how she did. I think what we do most of the time is we create new victims, new people who hurt other people, you know, so her mom is a victim of the way she was being raised and she's a victim of the way her mom, you know, raised her. At some point we have to make the efforts as people who know a lot now, to stop that. Many of us are having kids now, are going to start having kids now. It has to be on us to be like, you know what? Yeah, this thing that happened in my childhood, I'm not going to do it to my kids because slowly, if you're not really aware, you're going to notice that you are becoming the same thing you grew up hating.
1: And it's it's so hard not to. It's, it's funny because I went to a comedy show Um, This this past weekend and uh, the comedian said something about like, you know, when you catch yourself morphing into your parent and it's so it's the reality for a lot of us. And I think that essentially what happens is because it's a learned behavior, because it's things that we grew up seeing over and over again. Like, look at what you've just said about the kind of family that her mother grew up in and how that kind of created a victim who then went on to victimize someone else. You know, I'm sure that there was probably a point where when her mom was younger, she, she would have never thought that she would give a semblance of that to someone else. But when you live in a society or in an environment that does not, do anything to the perpetrators of the violence if anything like they just get to go on and live their lives and you're burdened if anything with having to do something or or your restitution comes in the form of you hopefully one day becoming the oppressor too that's what you're learning
0: it's also really sad that because of the relationship they have with aggression that her mom has and their family have there was an abuse that was swept under the rug The abuse had no room of being dealt with. Like, there was no room for that. I
1: don't think they would have even seen it as abuse. You know, like, if you're a mom, imagine hearing that your child was violated. And the first thing that you you can think about is to think is to accuse that child of being a hoe. Like, you also have to remember that her mom grew up with this man as well. You get what I mean? Her mom also grew up with with her uncle. and so her and and all of these other family members who were able to rally around and point the finger to her as a whole. So if anything, if that would have happened, if something similar would have happened to her mother, she would have known that her only other option was silence as well. so it, it it's and it and when she's talking about it, it almost sounds like there's an envy. Um, that her mom, you know, she she does mention it that her mom feels jealousy towards her, and I think it's just beyond her and her dad's relationship. I think it's it's this thing that is like the nerve of you to actually want to to want someone to care about your feelings, you know, like when you didn't have that growing up, when you lived in an environment where no one would have protected you. If anything, that would have been on the side of your abuser. That is the language that you learn.
0: I'm sure we're gonna do. A whole episode about religion in the future but the part that really stands out to me is the relationship Africans have with religion the fact that many people put religion ahead of all the important things that you know matter in life
1: yeah yeah oh god I can't you're right we we need an, a completely different episode on religion but I think that a lot of what you have said is so apt because as you're talking, I think what kept coming to me is that I think a lot of people use religion as a, a coping mechanism. And I we've talked about this in the past, about how we can't really blame people or judge people for whatever their coping mechanisms are. However, I think that especially in places like Nigeria and other African countries, what religion has done, especially with how it was brought to us, is that it's made us complacent because it's such a script manual for how to be as opposed to acknowledging how you feel you know it it is this thing where people feel that actually feeling their feelings they might go mad look at the the things that are happening here where she talks about endurance right about her father's endurance and Mm -hmm. how he stayed in this marriage and she said something that really hit me she said endurance isn't something to be proud about in a relationship and it's not you know (laughs) there's no reason why you should be with someone who is causing you that much distress that is not even healthy for you because a lot of our parents have used this as their coping mechanism you know when people have wronged them it's this thing that people have weaponized against them and said, hey, be, be a virtuous woman or hey, you know, children don't disobey their parents or hey, you need to be more forgiven. You know, it, it is it is that thing. And it, it's what has quieted them. And so when mm-hmm. they see you stirring up noise and, and, and been daring enough to put yourself first and your feelings first, it is almost an affront to what they have been taught. You know, and I think that that is one of the ways that religion can be used to be weaponized. And why walking away from people who have children that they see as extensions of themselves, why walking away from what they've taught you, what they think that they've had to do to survive, and, and watching you survive without it, is an, is an, it's almost like they realize they've been told a lie and they just cannot deal with that reality.
0: I also feel like many people are not as religious as they like to say they are. It's one of those things that you do because you feel like, well, I just have to do these things. Many of them have these questions they ask. They ask the questions that many other people ask. But unlike other people, they're not going to make a decision and be like, yeah, this is not working. They're never going to make a decision. They can think it, they can wonder, but they still feel like this prison I'm in is where I'm going to die. So guess what? whatever question i have about you know watching religious leaders manipulate people i'll just think about it but guess what i'm going to be stuck here till i die and that's really what is going on the most important thing is love it's family it's everything if something is telling you to push away all these people that mean so much to you at what point do you think yeah this is kind of weird you know the fact that they were so comfortable like pushing her out and saying yeah like nah disowning her because she chose not to be religious anymore is kind of weird and i don't want to point fingers because i understand that they're only dealing with it how they were told to deal with it i was really proud of her being able to make her decisions and say hey this is what i'm doing normally she could have thought well i'll just play along i just go back to church to make them happier to do this and even her deciding that Okay, yeah, I have all these issues. And you could tell that she felt really bad about how the relationship with her dad in particular has, you know, just gone really bad. She feels really bad, but she's also choosing her happiness. She's choosing to make her decisions by herself. I think that makes me really proud that more people are starting to think like that. And hopefully that's a thing that keeps going on.
1: Yeah, agreed. I hope so, too. And something she said that I want to mention was that I think what helped with that, her ability to essentially choose herself, um, is the relationships and the fact that she was able to kind of get away from that environment. And, and that's something that is echoed when I listen to a lot of other non-religious or other younger Nigerians that are becoming unreligious you know I know someone who told me that they told their parents that they were no longer that they no longer believed in Christianity and their parents just pretended that like that wasn't like the conversation never happened and the next Sunday they were just like okay well get your stuff you know there is this denial of it but I I, I think that stepping away and being able to be around either like-minded people or just being able to be in a place where you are actually allowed to think for yourself you know I think that allows you to really make your decisions for yourself and and like actually like center yourself in your decisions and I think that is another envy of super religious people it is that This is what they have been taught to understand as their truth. And so even if they have conflicting feelings or conflicting messages about who the Bible or whatever uh, script that they've been given says they are. There is this feeling of being stuck because and this fear of stepping outside of it, outside of what they've known and into the unknown. And this envy that comes from watching other people who are able to do so. Ultimately, I want to say to any because we might have some Nigerian parents who are um, listening and who have felt the way that her father has is feeling. I think it's really important to remember that your children aren't just an extension of you it's important to remember that they're their own people and that if you love them then you would the first thing i know for me the people that i love what i want to see first is their happiness and you have to understand that whatever recipe or just because a a remedy or or medicine has been working for you doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else. And if for someone it's just too conflicting and they just feel like this is not working for me, as the human being, (laughs) as the individual person that they are, they should be allowed to step away or they should be given the option to step away and look for whatever it is that will work for them and will bring them happiness. That is their human rights.
0: As a parent, your, your first job is to give them love. That's the one thing that's, that should be non-negotiable. So whether your kid is straying from religion, whether your kid is gay, whether your kid is dating somebody outside of their tribe, whatever it is that you don't understand or you don't you know subscribe to, whatever it is, just always remember that your first job is to be there for them as a parent and to love them as a parent. Everything else telling you the opposite is probably directing you the wrong direction. But yeah, this has been a great episode. Um, Very insightful story. I hope you enjoyed the story as well. I hope you enjoyed the discussion we had about this story. Um, Leave us comments and subscribe. Um, The last episode was quite engaging. I had so many people reaching out to talk about um, a common theme was people saying they they wanted to hurt the guy involved, which I was surprised <laughs> about. But, but thank you so much for that. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Moments Pod. Um follow us on Instagram at In These Moments Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at King wole that's K-I-N-G-W-O-L-E. And Timmy
1: at Timmy Nero, that's T-E-M-I- underscore N-I-R-A-N
0: perfect so um thank you very much for listening we'll be back with you in two weeks have a good one bye
1: have a good one